Welcome to the Beer Healer Interviews. I am your host, Chris Lukinenko, and I scour this big brand land of ours, looking under fermenters and behind mash tuns to find the best beer stories to share with you. The Beer Healer Interviews is now available on all major podcast services. If you like the show and want to help out, can I ask you to simply rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast service. Just leave a few words and a rating and the podcast gods will do the rest. By doing this, you'll help others to discover the show more easily and hopefully get more people interested in this great industry that we call craft beer. In case you hadn't noticed, our craft beer scene in Australia is maturing quickly. We are well past our formative years, we've made a few mistakes along the way as we grow up, and now I think we're in a bit of an adolescent phase. We're finding out who we are, what we stand for, and are forging our own identity. The same can be said for many craft breweries around the nation. You get into your fourth, fifth and sixth year of operation, and you've settled into your business model. Your beer range is pretty much cemented, and you know what does and doesn't make you money. Then it's time to take a look inside and make some tweaks to ensure that you are heading toward your long-term goal. Case in point, Ballistic Beer. You know them, the brewery with the cool keg bomb logo. Well, these guys have hit that point in their evolution where there are many things to consider if they want to continue to grow their business. And this is something that I really want to know more about. So, to talk about it, welcome to the Beer Healer Interviews, recipient of the 2018 Best Brewer Award at the Beeries, Lockie Crothers. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me, mate. Oh, absolute pleasure, mate. It's uh, great to chat with you. I was doing some research about you you guys this week, and we've got a fair bit of ground to cover because for a four-year-old brewery, there's been a hell of a lot going on in your place, hasn't there? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a pretty wild ride, eh? It's, um, it's funny, you know, like, and I think, you know, we'll get onto it later about the new core range launch and stuff, but we really just um, been running flat strap for four years that we only just had a chance to really sit down and look at all that again. So, yeah, pretty crazy times. Yeah, absolutely. Now let's let's go back into your brewing history first. Um, you were originally with Gage Roads in Western Australia. When was when was that? Yeah, so I cut my teeth there back in like it was April twenty ten. So I've just quit over a decade actually. Um, yeah, okay. As a professional brewer, but um, yeah, so I was like I don't know twenty two, I think twenty one when I got the job, and um, just like knocking about working in bottle shops. Didn't really know what I was doing in my life. I just liked beer. And um, actually, there's a bottle shop in Perth that was like one of the uh, nice places to go and get beer back then, and um, it called the International bottle, International Beer Shop. And um, I went in there and I was like, "How do you get sleeping with the guy behind the counter?" I'm like, "How do you get a job in a cool bottle shop like this?" And he said, "Well, I just jumped on Seek every day and, and just thought of something I liked, and I typed in beer, and I'm like, oh man, I like beer. I love beer." <laughs> So I um, started doing that every week. I'd just go and seek and type beer in. And this job as assistant brewer came up at Gage Roads and showed up to an interview. Somehow I got myself an interview and wandered in in my Liquorland outfit, tucked into my uh, trousers. And um, I don't know, somehow sweet talked Aaron Heary to um, give me a shot. And, um, yeah, the rest is history. So, yeah, pretty pretty wild ride there. I think I was there like five years in total. Yeah, okay. And then uh, you got the calling to head over to uh, Camden Brewery, which is a, a favourite of uh, Jamie Oliver's. Did you ever meet the great man? No, not Jamie. I met the great Jasper, though. Yeah, yeah, nice. And somewhere in, in between when you started with them and then before you left, they got bought out by AB InBev, which I'm assuming changed your plans a bit. Yeah, it was a bit crazy um, that time. Interesting to be involved. Um 
with in a brewery when that that's happening. I mean, it was. I mean, I was just a shift brewer. You know, I didn't. I wasn't in any real leadership position. I was just sort of like working holiday, making beer, and ah, oh, right, okay. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we probably had plans to be leaving anyway. My my wife wanted to move somewhere a bit warmer and. Um, London wasn't the place, so yeah, we, we were probably moving on anyway. It was just an interesting time, you know. So got a, quite a few friends that are working there still. Um, but yeah, a little bit of a, a shock to the system. No one, no one saw it coming, but yeah, yeah, okay. And and you said you got to meet uh, the the founder Jasper. Yeah, so he was always knocking about back in those days. I'm sure he probably still is. He's still CEO or something, I believe, or uh, managing director or whatever his title is, and. Still, um, you know, living living his dream, um, just probably with a battered wallet. I was going to say with a few extra dollars in his back pocket, <laughs> I reckon. <Yeah. laughs> so, uh, so how did it come about that you then left the UK and then met up with uh, with Dave to start Ballistic? Yeah, so I mean, we were sitting in London and we'd been travelling for about a year and spent six months just living in London and working and. I don't know, we just wanted to do something different and um, like I was saying, my now wife wanted to get, get somewhere a bit warmer and I actually had a, um, a job offer in Vietnam. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Past the Street Brewing? Yeah, it was actually. Oh, one of my favourites. I've had them on the podcast. Yeah, oh, right. Jasmine so, IPA, got to love it. Yeah, right. So, so the owner, um, oh, he's going to kill me. I can't remember his name. I've met him through the interview process. He's actually a friend of a friend of mine um, from – a friend of actually uh, a girl, Steph, who I used to work with at Gage Roads, who uh, was living with my now wife, which is how I met Vanessa as my wife, was through her. And then her, uh, Steph and her partner moved to the States and were brewing over there and met this guy. Oh, God, I can't remember his name. But he, uh, Alex? Yeah. Alex Violet or something yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Alex. And then he moved, um, he went to uh, Vietnam and started Pastor Street in Saigon. Uh, he was previously um, upslope. I think he's still involved with that somehow. And then he had a young family then and was looking to move on and wanted someone to come and build their new production brewery. And so I got chatting with him and it was like pretty close to um, shaking hands. And then because um, my wife, she's a, a midwife and a um, child health nurse and stuff. And if she if we were out of Australia for too long, she would have lost her registration. So she would have... Oh, right. Yeah, so basically she's like, oh, just th- see what you're qualified to do in Australia and throw your resume out to a bit of stuff. And so I just jumped on Crafty Pint and um, pretty much every job I was qualified to do in Australia, I flicked my resume and there was one for a brewery in Brisbane called Atlas Brewing, which thank God I managed to get a bit of a say in that and <laughs> change, change the name of the, of the brewery. But uh, that was <laughs> David Kitchen and... We had a Skype interview. I was sitting in my bedroom in our flat in London above a kebab shop. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and then like the week later, we were on a plane back to Australia. So, pretty snap decision, but um, we sort of rolled the dice with it and just see what came. And, you know, it's paid off. It's been a, been a wicked ride. Couldn't have been like Nice. And by the time you got home to Australia, had, had David already picked out the Salisbury site? Yeah, he had actually, which um, a funny way around to do it. I mean, he'd written a business plan and raised what he thought was going to be the amount of money we needed, and I think we doubled that in the end just before he opened the doors. Um, but, yeah, and then he'd found a site and taken out a lease on a site without having a brewer or 
um, anyone to execute the plan. I guess, I mean, he's a businessman. Um, you know, he spent 15 years running home for a chain of home brew stores and um, he's done, no, they worked in Hong Kong and was a diplomat and has done heaps of business stuff, a chartered accountant, but didn't have um, any skills to be running a production brewery, I guess. Um, yeah. Where I came in. But yeah, but he'd already found the site and um, yeah, I think. I don't know. We just kind of got lucky with how it all worked out in the end, but yeah. Why? Why Salisbury? So, for people that don't know Salisbury, it's sort of what is it? Uh, southwest of Brisbane, about twenty minutes by car. What, yeah, what's out there? What attracted you to that? Well, so David lived there. I think was oh uh, a key factor, but I don't think that was the final. I mean, he looked at sites all over Brisbane, uh, you know, up around the city and and everywhere, and it was just. Um, you know, we got a shed that was a thousand square meters for a reasonable uh, rent. Um, there's nothing really. There wasn't really anything in the suburb. It's sort of half industrial, half residential. I've just I actually used to live in. Uh, we owned a house in Salisbury up until recently as well. Um, it's mostly young families, so it's kind of the right demographic. Um, and then it's like there's industrial space, so we could have a shed. It was really close to residential, but we could still make noise. You know, we still brew till 10 p.m. most nights of the week and can run compressors and stuff, and there's lots of parking. And it just, I don't know, just, I, I can't tell you why David chose these sheds, but, yeah, they're pretty cool old 70s sawtooth. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, look, we, we should tell, like, there'd be people listening to this that don't know the reason why ballistic is called ballistic, so it's all about the, the location that uh, Dave picked. Do you want to sort of talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, that's funny actually because I just, um, you know, it's been such a part of my life for, for the last four years. I just assume everyone knows. But um, so, yeah, Salisbury um, as an area, there was um, either factories there back in World War Two where they used to manufacture the munitions um, for the Australian forces. So um, I think David and I, when I first went for face-to-face with him, I flew up to Brisbane and we were at my – in-laws place in Adelaide and I came up to Brisbane to meet him and spend a couple of nights and get to know him and look around the site and we just were having like getting nowhere with names. I don't know why, which in hindsight is really funny that we thought we needed a name before we had a solid business plan or any beers or any market or anything, but the name seemed really important at the time and we've kind of like been back and forth all weekend and I think we were just driving past the site um, and David mentioned something about the history of the suburb, and I'm like, that's kind of cool. I think David wanted like a Beach Boys themed brewery. Um, <laughs> I wanted some like post apocalyptic, like almost like Mad Max Fury Road thing. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it was just basically us pandering to our own idea yeah. what we thought was cool. But um, And then he would talk about the, um, the munitions manufacturing. We thought that's kind of cool, and you know, it's not too polarizing. So I just jumped on. Um, Wikipedia and just looked up. It was just Wikipedia list of um, terms related to guns or ammunition or something, and um, we were just going through them one by one. He was driving, and I was I think I was sitting in the passenger seat drinking a beer and going through this list. And we got to B, and ballistic came up, and we both sort of like we didn't really know each other at the time, and we both were like, yeah, shit, that's awesome, that's it, you know, it just kind of happened. Yep. And, um, yeah, so that's the history. It's of meant that. to be. It was, and then. It's kind of cool and it's got a bit of edge and it's interesting and, you know, the keg bomb, like our, our icon or brand logo, 
whatever you want to call it, something where we're lucky, really lucky to work with some really uh, talented designer up on the sunny coast who sort of developed that concept for us, which has become really, um, really important for our brand as well. Yeah. Was there ever a time where you thought, oh, I'm not sure whether I should make our logo a bomb? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I think so. Yeah, we definitely talked about it. Um, you know, bombs aren't the most cool, popular thing <laughs> no. these days. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But um, I don't know. I think we – excuse me, choking on my beer. I, um, we talked about a lot in the beginning about the names of the beers and, like, whether we wanted to go down that um, path, you know, munitions and guns oh, and yep. things, you know, like revolver red ale or whatever i don't know what the idea yep. but um we kind of thought that was maybe a bit too um like pigeonholing ourselves as a brand yeah yep. it can be a bit more you know like you can go ballistic or something can be yeah. in a positive sense it's not you know yep. it's, it can be physics based it can be lots of things it doesn't have to be about guns and bombs so um also um black ops which is another brewery up here that uh, do some cool stuff and we're starting out about the same time as us a lot of their branding um, it's in that similar – their naming convention is in that similar military, vein, yeah. military stuff. We kind of wanted to steer clear a bit from that because, uh, yep. you know, friends of ours and we didn't want to be cutting their grass, so to speak. So. And there was three of them and two of you, so that probably wasn't a fair fight. Well, that's right. And grass <laughs> is pretty tough, so. Yeah. <laughs> Dan Norris, not so much. No, no, he took his kiss. Shout out to Dan. Yeah. Fantastic point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, love you, Dan. If you're listening. <laughs> um, so we'll talk about the current lineup of beers in shortly. But mm. what beers did you brew initially? Yeah, we had so we kicked off with four beers, um, and I think so we had we had a mid strength offering. We thought that was important, uh, yep. particularly for Queensland, big mid strength. Yeah. Um, and then I think we had so we had uh, like a dry hop lager which was kind of probably naive on my behalf, thinking that we could bridge that gap between pale ale and lager. And yep. it still was a great beer um, and sort of lead the charge on lagers being great. But um, People weren't ready for it? Well, no, the beer, beers actually went, that particular beer went really well. It just turned out that everyone likes to drink pale ale. You know, it's something like yeah. 80% of every craft beer consumed in Australia is a pale ale. Like we just... Yeah. That was a, I don't know, probably an oversile naivety, I guess, in the beginning. Um, so that was Dirty Word Lager. Um, and so, yeah, well, I suppose we're talking about the names. It's kind of interesting how we changed them, why we changed them. So there was Pilot Light Table Beer was the mid-strength. Um, and then Pilot Light. Um, and then it was kind of like, I think we ended up getting rid of that because, you know, it said light in the name. It wasn't a light beer. It was a mid-strength. Um, table Beer, I really liked the idea of Belgian table beers and, like, Low alcohol, you know, you know, drinking with food and sharing, and I love the idea of that. But no one really understood it. I didn't tell the market no, story no. particularly well, so you know, people knew what table beers were. Were like, this isn't a table beer; it's a American pale ale. And people that didn't know didn't get it. And so, um, and then there's dirty word lager, which is was our dry hop lager, basically saying you know, lager is not a dirty word. Yeah. But still, again, like we probably didn't tell that story well enough, or it just didn't resonate i guess um we had uh an all hopped ipa um which was originally called australian psycho um which, <laughs> that, which was meant to be it was intended as a pop culture reference yeah the movie. Movie. 
Um, and it's quite an aggressive beer. It's 70 odd years. It's really quite multi. Oh, like, wow. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge beer, 6.5%. All Aussie hops, which are quite dominant too. So what I'm getting here now is I think you maybe were zero from four on your first four beers, were you? Uh, no, no. We, so that Australian Psycho is still around. Uh, oh, okay. We renamed that. So that became Revelation IPA. Right, uh, yep. That was probably 18 months ago, 18, 18 months, two years ago. And so, yeah, that one um, still exists in the same beer but a different different name. And then um, we had a grandf- grandfather, which was like a – uh, like a oat, old English old ale, seven percent malt driven. Uh, yeah, a bit of a hybrid sort of thing, which has kind of got this weird cult following. We don't sell really much of it at all. It's keg only these days, but still exists. Again, you know, still there. So two from four. That's yeah, that's okay. Bad. Yeah, that's not too bad. Uh, you, yeah. You're not. No, you when you're starting to some of these things from scratch, uh, you're not always going to get it right, are you? Oh well, that's right, and like, and 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 all of those beers, you know, it's funny. Like all those beers have won gold medals at AIBAs, which you know is the yeah, or the largest annual beer competition in the world. So yeah, it's fairly prestigious awards. But it it was, I think, a lot of it was to do with the branding and the packaging, and and just our lack of experience in running a beer business. You know, like the beers were fine because you know I've been brewing beer professionally for ten years. You know, making good beers not actually. Like that's kind of an easy bit of running a brewery um, in the end, it turns out. So. I've got a question for you. Do you like the show? And do you want to help support the industry that we all love by spreading the craft beer gospel far and wide? Well, there's one thing you can do, and it doesn't involve putting your hand in your pocket and pulling out your credit card. Nope, just click the Apple Podcast link in the show notes and leave a review and a rating. The Apple Podcast gods do the rest, and you will feel all warm and fuzzy for doing your bit for craft beer. That's all. Back to the interview. So looking back on that first year, what was it like? Did, did everything pretty much run smoothly, or were you messing up more than you were kicking goals? Oh, it was like, honestly, looking back now, it was probably a, sh- it was a shit fight. Like, <laughs> I think maybe it was our ignorance that allowed us to be successful because we just had this confidence like, yeah, I mean, it can't be that hard. People like craft beer. Our beers are pretty good. Um, and, you know, the, the first year, um, you know, I spent the first year just sitting in the factory by myself. We had, we just had an empty shed when I started work. So we had a bank account full of money and an empty shed. So I spent a year working there by myself um, and, spec, you know, we didn't have – idea of a brewery we're buying or anything so it was like you know finding quotes um for breweries and you know finding out what's good and you know specking up a brewery and you know commissioning have it made and inspecting it and then installing commissioning it and then plus designing all the beers and branding and stuff it took us about a year i think i started in like march 2016 and we had first beers to trade in january 2017 so um, okay yeah, so it's a fairly. So it's only like three and a half years you've been really actually, kicking out the beers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. So, and then it's just gone. It's just been crazy since then. And we opened our cellar door uh, in Salisbury in April of that year, twenty seventeen, and it was just like I don't know. Somehow we'd engaged the community, and I'd like, fuck, if I could like have bottled that, or I could write a book about how we did that. Man, I'd be much, I'd be a much richer man. I just, it was just <laughs> right place, right time. 
you know, the community needed it. They wanted it. We were there doing something good and authentic, you know, and we were a bit young and dumb, but we just kind of, you know, we were honest. You know, it was Dave yeah. and I and our wives working behind the bar every weekend. And, you know, we opened the door and we had like a line, probably 300 people long for four hours when we opened. Really? Yeah, it was just insane. Oh. You know, we probably had a thousand people or more through the door in the first four hours we ever opened. You know? Shit. I was going to ask the question whether it took a while for the Forex gold drinkers to, you know, get educated about what this whole craft beer thing was, but it sounds like maybe they'll just starve for something out there and they'll just come and have a bit of a sneaky look and, and ended yeah. up staying and loving it. Yeah, totally, and it's become a real community hub. And it, I mean, I, I do feel like, you know, Brisbane's an interesting scene in that, you know, when I moved here, there was probably like three breweries of doing anything of note in craft space. It was Green, Green Beak and Newstead, which were both just brew pubs at the time. And then there was Fortitude. I think All In were around, maybe a couple of gypsy brewers, but there really wasn't a real mature scene. And, you know, like coming from WA where, you know, it's like the home of craft beer in Australia. Um, yeah. You know, Matilda Bay, uh, the Salonanco is like the original brew pub in Australia, right? You know, that's where yep. we used to go for knockoffs um, after – finishing night shift at Gage or, you know, Little Creatures was so instrumental in, like, you know, bringing hops to Australia, you know, like American Pale Elf, you know, everyone was blown away by that. You know, Feral did Hop Hog, which is, like, the first ever American IPA, as far as I know. Um, so when I was learning to brew in 2010 plus, it was craft beer was kind of um, established and, you know, everyone sort of knew you could buy Hop Hog in every pub and it was just kind of the thing. And then coming to Queensland, you know, nearly a decade later and just seeing that the, the scene is really, was really immature then, uh, but we still got this great support. And then it's just gone in leaps and bounds. You know, when we opened, I couldn't have sold a salvia to save my life. And then on our second birthday, we had a, like a whole outside bar dedicated to salvias and we did like oh, wow. four different ones and the whole community got all around it and everyone came to try all the different salvias and so yeah I mean it's just gone and now I think it's like if you look at the the data of um, beer sales like Queensland like Brisbane CBD is the highest volume per capita of craft beer sold in Australia so like it's, it's a really good scene in and around there isn't it it's crazy like more there's yeah. more beer per capita than Melbourne CBD or like Sydney you know it's like, awesome so, yeah, it's really cool. So, so speaking of that, uh, you know, sort of something must have been going right for you guys, but you also probably felt that you needed to do more and maybe tap into that because in 2018 you were you were able to expand your operations and you opened the Ale House in in West End. Did you feel that you needed to be a little bit closer to the to the CBD to help move some volume and grow the brand, or how did that sort of come about? Yeah, look, I mean, that kind of just happened a little bit organically. We wanted to expand. Um, our business, obviously, and we we looked at, you know, wholesale was doing reasonably well for us at the time, um, but wholesaling beer is quite expensive because you need a lot of bodies on the ground and the market yeah. is a lot lower, right? So, um, and, and, and you know, us just looking at, you know, inwardly at our own business, um, our Salisbury Taproom was the most profitable part of our business because we were selling beer at a retail uh, we got to engage the community. People liked our brand. It kind of it made sense to uh, expand our hospitality offering as well as as as, as pursuing wholesale. So um, there was an opportunity for a bar. It was one of our customers 
in West End who wanted to get out of hospitality. Um, we sort of gave them that out, uh, took over the bar and, and then opened it again, probably naively, like we didn't really, <laughs> you know, opening a tap room at a brewery, we didn't know what we were doing. We managed to pull it off and we sort of were a bit arrogant probably from that and then this came up and we thought, oh, it can't be that hard. There's a kitchen, but we'll just get a chef and we'll just get a bar manager and, you know, we'll just sell some more beer. People love ballistic, they'll just come. And uh, that, I mean, that was pretty wild ride again. You know, that's been um, probably a bit more up and down than, than the Salisbury place, but it's been really nice having a place closer to the city, like you say, where we can um, have a bit more connection with the Brisbane city uh, for that reason. And, yeah, it's just it's a nice place where people can engage with our brand. Uh, without having to drive out to Salisbury. Because it's only, honestly, it's like, it's 12 k's from CBD. But yep. just, I don't know, a lot of people just see, like, you get a motorway, you know, just assume that it's far, so. Yeah, I, I was literally going by Google Maps because I haven't driven out there, but <laughs> Google yeah. Maps is not always right. Hey, so all the while that you, you're doing all this planning for the new venue and uh, getting that up and running, you're also pumping out new beers all over the place. I did a quick count of un, on Untapped today, and I got up to something around 50 in your first two years. That's yeah. a hell of a lot of beers while you're trying to do that other stuff as well. I know, it's silly, isn't it? I don't know why why we thought that was a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But no, yeah, yeah, we did. And we brewed a lot. We actually had a, um, we do have, still have a little uh, like 200 litre pilot kit at Salisbury. Ah, right. Yeah, okay. It's a bit of a pig of a system to brew on, but we can actually get some pretty good beers out of it. It's just a bit labour intensive. Um, But that just allowed us to brew some sort of um, more weird, wacky and wonderful beers for our our bars, um, which probably contributes to that a lot. We were trying to pump out some stuff on that that, you know, just, you know, because our, our main brew house is two and a half thousand litres, so you do something that's pretty out there, you've got 40 kegs of it to sell. Did you feel the pressure to be constantly creative because you were new and shiny or is that just, was that maybe why you got into doing this? Uh, yeah, look, personally probably not. <clears throat> I mean, because uh, like I always, I always like to say it's a bit, it's a bit, it's probably a bit, uh, Silly, but you know um, how like uh, you have volunteer firefighters and and career firefighters. You know, yeah. like, I've always been a career brewer. I've never home brewed. Why um, did oh. since being a professional brewer? Um, like I cut my teeth on a five thousand liter manual brewery. You know, um, brewing multiple batches into tanks and handling you know big batches of yeast and hops. And so for me, it's always been commercial brewing and production. And so. I kind of was confident enough that if we could get our beers good and the brand good, then we didn't need to be that trick beer place, you know, like just to draw people in, you do weird, wacky stuff because I felt like we could uh, sort of rest on the fact that we could make really solid, consistent, balanced beers. And for me, that's what beer is all about. It's for drinking, right? So you can make a white milkshake, mud cake, berry whatever IPA and it's great and it's interesting but it's just you know like I I'm a brewer because I like drinking beer and I like going to the pub and I like having a pint and I just think there's something really magical about that whole experience and so that's what I wanted to be able to recreate for people that drink ballistic beer is being able to have a really amazing beer experience 
with our stuff and drink stuff, it's balanced. It doesn't matter if it's a 13, 14% Russian Imperial Stout or if it's a double IPA or a mixed strength or a lager or whatever, you know, every every ingredient's got to have its place in the world. It's got to be there for a reason. It's got to create like a harmony within that beer that just makes you want to drink it because that's the beauty of beer. You know, there's no other reason that beer exists. Give me give me, give me, me a balanced IPA over that whatever the other bloody concoction you said before any yeah, day. Exactly, <laughs> Yeah, and it can be 70, 80 IBUs. You know, you brew a double IPA at 100 IBUs, but it's got to be balanced and you've got to use, you know, the process ingredients at your disposal to to bring all that together. So, yeah, anyway, that's kind of my rant. Fair enough. But, yeah, yeah so no, I, I guess back to the original question, no, I didn't feel the pressure to be doing heaps of weird and wacky stuff. And to be honest, it's not my personal strength. Um so, but I think David kind of wanted more of that. So we kind of teetered on the edge, which I think worked really well, that he wanted really weird, extreme, uh, innovative, boundary-pushing stuff. I wanted conservative, balanced beers, and we kind of did enough that we could uh, keep everyone happy. And then we've sort of developed our beers and ranges around having that diversity um, from really extreme craft to um, about, like easily digestible available sometime after the the whole um first expansion you, your growth didn't stop there and look at something that gets discussed with a lot of breweries around your size and your age you get a bit caught somewhere in the middle where you you aren't big enough to battle with the big boys but you need something more than just the size of the operation that you have and that might be just adding another you know a canning line or a bigger bit to the brewery or, or another venue like in your situation but you know the funds to make that change aren't always available. So I just want to know, tell me if I'm wrong, but is that kind of where you found yourselves when you started talking with Founders First people? Uh, yeah, sort of. I probably still do, um, to be honest. Like, yep. it's actually a technical term in the industry um, of that situation where you're, you know, you've, you've outgrown your tap room, you're wholesaling a lot of beer, you've probably got a lot of finance and equipment, um, but you're not really big enough to be uh, pushing out the other side and, and being really profitable yet, and they call it the valley of death. Um, <laughs> Do they? <laughs> and that's where a lot of breweries, they, they plunge down into that valley and then you can never get up the other side because it's so yep. up. You've got to get to a certain volume. It's probably around a million litres from, you know, a brew pub where you're doing probably 100 to 150,000 litres, maybe wholesale it a little bit, and then you've got to, like, take the plunge and then swim like fuck and just try and get out there. <laughs> I love that. That's and great. Get to a million litres, and then you kind of like, you're at, you're, at, you're at like, you found your pontoon, and then it's like, okay, where to now? You can take a breath. So we're kind of somewhere in that at the moment. Um, and Founders have been great, and they're, you know, a really great resource for us, but they only own a really small portion of Ballistic. Um, so, I mean, we're still very much independent and very much um, running the business as we would have. It just meant that they... Uh, took on all of our sales capacity out of out of our business. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah, which has been uh, generally really good. Um, and we don't have to – I mean, we didn't have the experience to really manage a national sales team. Not that that stopped us doing anything before, but I think we learned, <laughs> you know, we, we, we couldn't grow a lot further if, if we kept doing it ourselves. And it's really expensive to pay, you know, 10 – salaries of salespeople all the time. And so anyway, that's um Yeah. That's my and life. did that relationship then lead to the ability to fund the Springfield brew pub as well? 
Uh, no, completely separate. So, oh right, okay. Uh, we we were doing Springfield anyway. Um, yep. And I believe that was open before we signed on the dotted line with founders. If I have my dates correct, but yeah. See, I told you I'm not a journalist. I've got no fucking idea. I just thought I was trying to put <laughs> two and two together. <laughs> oh, no, I love it. No, um, no, that was separate as well. Like um, Springfield again, we were looking to expand our hospitality offering. We um, from the lessons we'd learned at Salisbury and the lessons we'd learned at West End, we, we realised that we probably, um, that people like to look at brewing equipment. So that was a big lesson for us. Um, and that bigger venues, it's easier to make them uh, turn a profit. So we um, had an opportunity brought to us uh, of a, like a 350-seat pub on the uni grounds in Springfield, which everyone was like, oh, you know, how's this going to go? Um, we went and looked at it and we just, I don't know, we we're all really sceptical, ran the numbers, ran the numbers, and we just managed to make it work on paper. Um, so, and then we, yeah, I bought another brewery for that site. We had an 800 litre brewery down there that we sort of our middle ground where we do R&D. Um, and then, yeah, opened the pub there. So remodeled the pub and got that open. And again, like community support's been like insanely overwhelming. Um, I actually moved out to Springfield in December. Um, just oh, okay. everywhere we build a brewery, I buy a house. So <laughs> my pattern, it's an expensive habit, but uh, yeah. I just hope we don't you know, build one in London next time. I'm not sure I can afford it. But, yeah. <laughs> Where, where's the next one? Maybe you, you seem to be going further south, so maybe you'll be going down to the Goldie or somewhere like that. Hobart, mate. What about that? Hobart. Mate, if you come down to Hobart, I'm, I'm – I'm going to be your regional marketing manager just for the Hobart area. <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> Work fine for me. I'm yeah. okay. From what I tasted this week with the samples you sent me, I'll be very happy with that. So, uh, and, and speaking of, look, I don't know, in case you weren't aware, there's been a bit of a pandemic sweep in the globe. And oh. interestingly, during this time, you guys decided to refresh your branding. And yeah. uh, now there would be many people out there that are thinking you are Fucking crazy for doing a reband brand during COVID, but as you and I both know, these things take sometimes up to a year to plan and implement, don't they? When, yeah. when did you start, first start talking about the rebrand? Yeah, so, I mean, I think I was talking at the start how, like, we had those crazy few years and we are just trying to, like, really find our feet and, like, it was probably – I'd been chatting about it for the second half of last year, so the second half of 2019 – Yep. Sort of been chatting and I, I sort of I solidified my brewing team pretty well. So I was a little bit off the tools. Um, and I had some, you know, some really good people uh, looking after actually making the beer. So I could sort of think about what we were doing from more of a helicopter view. And, um, you know, we, we looked at, you know, some numbers and what we were selling. And really, quite interestingly, it was 50% of all beer we sold was a seasonal beer or a specialty release. Um, really? Yeah, which was crazy. Oh. Right? Uh, yeah, just was, the expensive stuff too. Yeah, I know. So it's like it's good margin. So we kind of like it was easy to sell. People wanted it. The margins were good, and we're just like keep doing it, keep doing it. And and then we kind of took took a step back and looked at it. And we're like, well, why is this? And we sort of dove into it quite deeply. And and uh, you know, the, the thing was that, um, and it was quite different because most breweries are the other way around. So what we had was really good brand engagement and people cared about the beers and they, they thought they were good and they wanted to come back to them, but they didn't really understand our core range. It was a bit higgledy-piggledy. Um, you know, we had a, we just um, put on an operations manager 
um, a few months ago, and she comes highly experienced within the industry too in a similar role. And we sort of sat her down on day one and said, all right, tell us what you know about ballistic. And she didn't even know we had a core range. Someone, you know, from a similar size brewery. And um, so we kind of, well, we're like, okay, well, that's good. I mean, it, it's, it's better than it being the other way around. So we sort of looked at it and we went, all right, so all our core range have all won gold medals consistently. Like they're all great beers, but people don't understand them. They don't get the marketing message. You don't really engage with them, but they're okay. Like the beers are good, but we're probably, there's other parts that we're not executing well. So what we did, and, and it was really a bit eye-opening for me where I had to like swallow my pride a bit and realize that I don't know everything about beer and that I don't understand what people want to drink. And we actually thought, well, fuck it, let's go and ask people what they want. Let's, let's let the people who are drinking our beer decide on the beers that we're going to brew. So, and not, not down to the fact that they designed the recipes, but we actually went out and we did a survey of our customers. So we got about 800 people in that survey where we uh, just asked them about the beers we were brewing and, and what they wanted and what they liked and what they wanted us to change. And really what came out of it is that people wanted – um, these all craft beer drinkers that currently engage that brand, they wanted like cheap, more affordable beer that they can drink every day. So that meant like lower alcohol and like easy drinking sessionable beers, really. I mean, and, and not that our beers weren't that, but they wanted to feel like they were and they wanted them to be a little bit cheaper. So we kind of took that on board. We went out and did a heap of other research, looking at studies worldwide about, you know, why people bought beer and what they wanted and, and, Basically, it came, you know, and we went back and we just designed, redesigned the whole core range. We had a heap of tasting panels of different lagers versus each other, our own plus competitors. We did a heap of pale ales and we just took all that data and just looked at what people wanted and built a range that people wanted to drink, you know, which, you know, seems crazy where you would uh, let the people that are drinking it decide. But I mean, <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's been really, it's been really, really nice and really humbling as a business. So we had to, sort of um you know take a step back and and mature a bit you know and then realize that that it's all about what other people i think that's exactly the perfect word i was trying to find then was that's a real mature thing a you had to you know put your ego aside i suppose in some ways but you've talked to your your bloody consumers you haven't just gone off on a gut feel because sometimes in craft beer you know gut feel is perhaps valued more than perhaps statistics and things like that so to to push all that stuff aside and let the numbers help you make this decision, I think it's a really awesome thing. Yeah, and it was tough and it took us like a lot to understand that that was the, the way to go. Like it wasn't just overnight, like we just knew this is how we should approach it, but we just kept, you know, just kept coming back to like why, you know, asking why are we doing this, why are we doing this, why would we do this, why, why are we changing this and just, and just having legitimate um, reasoning for why we're making these decisions really helped as well, you know. So, um, and then with the bread, like the actual visual, um, the designs of the packaging, you know, we um, felt that, you know, a lot of the, the surveys we did showed that our previous cans, while people liked them, were probably a bit serious, a bit dark and a bit masculine. And Yeah, that's that's fair, I think, yep. yeah. Yeah, and, and then like um, a 40% of all people that drink our beer currently are female. So you're like scaring off half, you know, 40% of your crowd already. 
Um, and they didn't really reflect the personality of the beers. I mean, all that grounds are light and bright and fruity and summery and, you know, just beers you want to, you know, everyday drinking beers. But in a dark, serious can, you know, it seems more like a, it's winter, you know, just by looking at it, you just don't get the right feeling about it. So there was a, that was yep. a big, big thing for me with the, with the brief sort of the can designs is they needed to reflect the personality of the beers. So. And, uh, and obviously you've gone with, the, you know, the colours to signify the type of beer, which yep. seems to be a pretty popular way of, of doing things these days. I would like, uh, I struggle to find brands that don't do that, successful brands yeah. that don't do that. Um, it's almost like the only approach that works on a large scale. I mean, I may be wrong. That's that's my opinion, but it's, it doesn't seem to be another way to do it. Yeah, no. I'd, and look, it works. You look at you know people like your mates at Black Ops. They they've got uh, their their colours running through. You know, yeah. Bolter is obviously a very good example of doing that. Yeah. Um, the big the big guys have done it with James Squire in the past and those sorts of things. So it, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think it is Coopers. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think. It's- uh, Moon Dog, um, you know, name a brewer that doesn't do it. On and on, yeah, yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe not. They've got their own little thing going on yeah. with their uh, with their art. <laughs> so, but um, you know, we talk about your range of beers. It's fair to say that you have a a very extensive range of beers. You've got your core, your specialty, your seasonal. You sleep when you're dead, your sour twang, your single hop, your collaborations, your staff brews, and then wait. If that's not enough. Anything that doesn't fit into those buckets goes into your miscellaneous series, yeah. and uh, that's a pretty big bloody portfolio. So I can see why you needed the, you felt the need to, to simplify your core range. But what about all those other beers? How is all that stuff changing? I'm assuming they're not going to all fall into line with the similar place, uh, similar cans that you've got now. No. But is is there an overall portfolio type strategy you're going with? Uh, yeah, I mean there is. We talk about it a lot. Um, but it, it's kind of a weird organic portfolio that's developed that we now have to deal with. Um, it's like it kind of just happened and now we've got this this pig of a thing that we need to beat into shape and sell people. <laughs> so that's probably a really shitty way to say it. A marketing guy would kill me for that. But anyway, <laughs> take wave. I know you'll be listening to this tomorrow morning. But um, <laughs> I, like, so, yeah, just all the range just kind of happened and, I guess the benefit of that for us is that once you understand what one of our ranges is about, it's really easy to follow it. And like we could just release, you know, take Sleep When You're Dead, for example, right? Like we have a range of IPAs that we do. We brew four different ones a year. Um, We now don't do the same ones again. Uh, That's been a decision we've made. Um, You can only buy them for eight weeks. So basically we're trying to play for freshness. You've got a dead by date on the can, eight weeks before that can. Then if it's still around, we pull it back off the shelf and we destroy it or take it home. And yep. It but, um, Makes sense. Yeah, but then so that range of beers. Now, if you're familiar with that sleep and you're dead, we need to tell you that story and you need to understand that. But now you understand that, every time you see sleep and you're dead, you know that beer is less than eight weeks old. Anywhere in Australia, it's been cold. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You know it's going to be shit hot, right? So, yep. and then, you know, now that flows onto twang, which the kettle sour range we do. If you know you like twang, you know it's a good beer, you know you like apricots, you know, it becomes a no-brainer. It just it, it almost drives that um, like confidence in the brand because if we just had apricot kettle sour or we had, you know, Laney um, Fajoa kettle sour is a different one, 
you would never have that same connection or link back to the to the brain. So it's kind of worked in our favour, not necessarily intentionally to begin with, but we've really tried to grab hold of it and, and use it as a uniqueness that we have that a lot of breweries don't. Because um, then you've just got seasonals and core, whereas like it adds a bit of depth um, and familiarity to the range. Yeah. I, I didn't understand when I was first researching um, last week what sleep when you're dead meant. I was like, what the bloody hell is that? There's some yeah. interesting-looking labels and blah, blah, blah. And then once it was explained to me when I read a bit further, I was like, ah, I totally get it, and that really, really makes sense. Very similar to the stone, what's the stone drink by or whatever they have? Drink by, yeah. And I think enjoy by. Enjoy. enjoy by. Yeah, there's that and there's one other, uh, what is that? I can't remember, but they were kind of um, part of the inspiration to, the, to that range of beers um, and just like, I don't know, like I'm so passionate about fresh beer and that's another reason that I continue to work in the brewery. It's not because it's glamorous. Um, you don't just sit around drinking beer all day, but the, when you get to drink fresh beer directly from a bright tank before it's been packaged, like there is no time in that beer's life it's going to be better than at that point. It, you know, and I'm so yep. fortunate that I'm in a position where I can drink beer it's that fresh every day of my life. And it's so, I don't know, that's why I'm so passionate about beer experiences. And, I, and, this, and this kind of follows on from that and that you can get this fresh beer into people's hands and guarantee the freshness of it. And people can, I mean, the whole premise and what we talk about on the brewery is getting that same knockoff, have a drink from the bright beer tank experience that the brewers get to have every day and give that to everyone and allow everyone to have that really magical experience because it is really, it is really unique. You know, it's really cool. I've got to ask, who in the brewery is the NFL fan that came up with Madden's curse? With I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, and you've got Antonio Brown on the on the label <laughs> there for Madden's curse, the Mango Milkshake Session IPA. Who yeah. came out with that? Well, that was actually a funny story. Um, no one in the brewery. We do have a mad team <laughs> NFL fan um, who's an Eagles supporter. Um, in who is a brewer at Ballistic, but um, it was actually so that beer was a collaboration with Hop Nation, and it was their Queensland rep Ben Taylor who is a mad NFL, and they do the Madden gaming uh. stuff. And we had a, an event at West End venue, uh, I think it was for Bruce Vegas, which was around a Madden gaming thing, and we released that beer, and that was his concept. Um, I didn't get it. I'm, you know, I love sports. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I've got kids and I have time to dedicate to more than one or two sports. So. <laughs> no, fair enough, fair yeah. enough. <laughs> now, another unique thing you got yourself involved in during COVID was the Brew Unity beer, which which is a pretty unique idea. Can you explain the thinking behind that beer for me? Yeah, look, um, so COVID's been a really crazy time for us. Um, we, at the start, really made a conscious decision that we wanted to come out of it stronger. We took that mindset as a business we wanted to maintain as many of our staff as we could um, at full pay and just try and forge ahead and and really come out of it stronger and where people were hunkering down, we were going to come out fighting, you know. So um, basically at the beginning as a management group, we were meeting every morning to discuss ways that we can generate revenue. You know, we had to shut three pubs um, for a small business, you know, like that's, a huge chunk of our revenue stream and yeah. you know we've got uh before covid we had 60 staff um and three pubs and a production brewery and our own canning facility and a function space and 
you know, it was all, it was pretty hairy. Um, but we're like, how can we just keep making revenue? So we we looked at heaps of, it looked, basically nothing was off the table. And, put, and um, you know, home delivery, we were all out in our cars, all permanent staff, brewers, uh, managers, CEO. I was out in the CEO's Porsche one day, freaking delivering cartons of beer. And the <laughs> just any way we could get beer to people and they could give us money. You know, it was really, it was really good. But I was actually um, one of our brewers, Toby, who, is from SA and he was back home for a week, sort of when it all kind of happened. He's still flown and he just got back and it was all going down. And he showed up to work one morning and I was walking in my coffee and we were standing on the tree at the front. We were having a bit of a chat and I was sort of assuring him that he still had a job and things were all good. And he said, I've been thinking about ideas for what we can do. And he's like, um, why don't we try and brew something that um, where we can make it really tasty We'll reduce alcohol a bit. We'll use some really innovative brewing techniques um, and try and make makes a beer for our community that we can sell to them at a really reasonable price so that they support So we'll support our community by giving them a craft beer that is high quality but affordable and they can support us by actually spending their dollars with us because in a crisis, they're just going to start buying major beer, like, you know, mass yep. lager because it's cheaper, right? And so we wanted yep. to... Yeah. Um, change our paradigm a little bit and, and try and do something for our community and they've supported us so much we wanted to give something back so that was the concept and I took it to the management team and we took it to the board and they were like let's give it a crap so uh, Toby myself and um, Jake who's our senior quality brewer so my two OC in the brewery and we sort of sat down and developed this recipe for a beer using um, Kuwait, um strain of yeast which like throws really tropical fruit characteristics and ferments super quick. So you turn over the beer and, you know, from brew day to packaging was about 10 days. Um, we normally give And that's like that. that's a key cost saving for you, isn't it? Because it's not taking up tank space for other stuff. Exactly right. So super quick turnaround. It ferments at like 40 degrees. So there's no um, chilling. 40? Yeah. Shit. 38. And it's done in three days. We dry wow. it during ferment, bang it down to zero and you know like using hot uh, yeast characteristics so we can save on hot costs so you've still got fruit character nice uh, but without spending a bucket load on hops and um just is and of course when you're drinking like a four percent you know almost mid-strength type beer you're not expecting it to be completely over the top with all those characteristics are you well that's it but it's got enough uh fruit character and enough uh depth of malt flavor to and you know we like look at water profile and how we could beef out the palate to account for having being low alcohol and any creative thing we could do like that to try and make this beer as, as awesome and still true to our um, morals and our um, ethics as, as as craft brewers and making really high quality beer but just and you know this stuff we use some cans that we don't use anymore that we're still there with a small. I saw that they were the dark coloured cans. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we them, but we bought. You know, the label that went on them cost. It, it's worth eight cents instead of the large label that covers the whole can cost twenty cents. You know, so yep. you know you're saving like cool. three bucks a carton, and then we didn't put four packs on them, so you got to buy the whole carton. And all those little things, just yeah. every little thing you could do. You know, we ended up, I think we were. We were um, selling them direct to punders for fifty nine bucks from the brewery. Um, and that's that's pretty good. Yeah, from retail, so we we're doing it cheaper than that for retail, so that they could get it to that fifty nine dollar price point. Yep. Um, so yeah, I mean that was a really cool exercise, and we did that 
turn that around in like from concept of idea to that first conversation we had under the tree at the front with a coffee, two beer and pan was 14 days, you know, which oh, that's is awesome, mate. insane, but it was really cool. And, you know, that's been really successful for us and, yeah. That's what they always say that out of in times of crisis uh, comes innovation, and you guys have certainly done that. It it ticks a lot of boxes for me. A four percent fridge filler that's uh, that's cost effective. Is it here to stay? Uh, TBC on that. Yeah, <laughs> I think I know, there's chat about it. We might rebrand it. I don't know. We'll we'll see. It was definitely a COVID beer, uh, but it's got a bit of a following. Fair enough. It showed that there's an appetite for beer at that price point. Um, yeah, we proved we can do it. So it's like. It, it reminds me of uh, you know similar ways that the Hawkers Rovers Henty Street Ale, yep. that kind of an an idea where you're going to try and be sub sixty, yep. uh, for a, for a twenty four pack is is very reasonable, um, and I, th- I think there is definitely a market for that. And if you can do it in such a way that you're talking about here with, you know, you're saving money with the the speed of brewing and whatever other way you can, I think I think. Um, for a fridge filler, I think uh, craft beer drinkers would certainly appreciate that. Yeah, totally. And then we have those exact same conversations. It's just about how we execute that. Um, but in the middle of, you know, we launched our core range eight days ago on the 1st of June. So we've had a fair bit else. Um, yeah, you could say so. Space. But I think it's going to, uh, yeah, that conversation will come up in, in coming months and weather and how that, that how that beer takes its next next stage in life. So I mean you've had a you've had a pretty big six months sorting out all this core range stuff, getting everything in order. Uh just gonna take the next six off and just relax and just see the uh, this all come together for yourself nicely. Sounds fantastic, Daddy. <laughs> no, I like, uh, we were talking at the beginning, you know, I got um, a two week old and a two year old. Um so I'm about to have three weeks uh attorney leave for my outlaws um, head back to Adelaide on Friday. So yep. um yeah I'll do three weeks at home dealing with um, Charles and then it's uh, foot on the gas, you know. Um, I think it's going to be a really big winter. I think it's going to be a real big appetite for people going out and drinking and eating and enjoying themselves and socialising. I know I was, you know, a lot of the time uh, when I'm standing on the can line putting four packs on and thinking to myself, I generally, uh, um, you know, just that's my zen time and uh, I was thinking how much I would love to go and have a pint somewhere. Um, and how much I miss it. So I really think like, it's going to be a crazy, crazy winter for everyone. Mate, I reckon as soon as they open the uh, the Tasmanian borders, you guys are just going to get flooded with bloody Tasmanians trying to get some warm weather. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I was up in the garage when we uh, went before we started this. I was like, man, it's cold. I put my jumper and socks on, and I think I had a look at the weather. It was 16 degrees. Um, yeah, bullshit. It's about three down here tonight where I am, you bastard. Oh, yeah. What a prick, eh? At minimum of 11 tonight, so. Yeah. yeah. I know. I've certainly got plans with the wife and kids to to come up as soon as we can because uh, we had a, a great trip to Spain cancelled on us that we were meant to be there at Easter time. So we're, yeah. we're fanging for a bit of a holiday and uh, the warm weather and all of the great breweries in and around where you guys are now is certainly uh, attractive for me, certainly, but maybe not quite so much my wife and kids, but... <laughs> I've got to have have some dad time every now and then, I reckon. Yeah, absolutely, mate. I support you. Hey, but um, hey, if you ever up this way, pop out, mate, and we can drink some beer from the bright beer tank and have a magical oh, uh, sounds, experience together. Sounds magnificent. And look, thanks for sending those samples down to me this week. I've thoroughly enjoyed them. Uh, I had never had the oaked XPA prior to to having that, and yeah. wow, that really really surprised me. I. Oh, fantastic. I really loved it. It's a ripping beer. It's unique, eh? Hey? It's really unique. It is. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, man, we could do an hour podcast. Me talking about that game for another time. Yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Well, mate, uh, I'll, I'll let you get back to things. Congratulations on on the new addition to the family. Congratulations on the fantastic uh, rebrand that you guys have done, and and the Brew Unity. And no, uh, just congratulations on bloody everything. Well done, mate. You've been doing well. Thanks, legend. Hey, good on you. Today. Cheers, mate. Catch yeah. you later. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have an interesting beer story and want to be a guest on the Beer Healer interviews, send me a message via my Facebook page. And once again, if you want to help out the show, a simple rate and review on Apple Podcasts or a follow, like or share on any other podcast service will do the trick. I'll catch you soon.